Uh, the right reading is starting in verse 1 of chapter uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, going through to verse 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God who I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Louis, and in your mother, Eunice, and, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to be a whole, to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel... I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is not, yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, except, uh, including Phinegas and Homogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when I was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Dear Hamish, there are no squirrels in your bedroom wall. I am really sure of that. Hamish, let me encourage you to remember to pick up your underwear when you're asked and even when you're not. Eat your veggies. Have a shower at least once every few days. Don't hit your brother or pull your sister's hair. If you get into football... Why not support the Bombers? They seem to need all the support they can get. 
and it'll make your grandfather really proud. Buy good quality tools. I reckon Makita and Bosch are the best. Be good to your mother. She's a wonderful woman. Love her and respect her and trust her. But Hamish, most importantly, guard and treasure the gospel that you learnt from me and your mum and from your church. Feed the fire of conviction. Despite what happens in the world around you, don't be ashamed of Jesus and his message of hope. Lots of love, your dad. If you only had a short time to live, what is it that you would go about doing? Some people make lists. They call them bucket lists. I think they call them that because they're lists of things you want to do before you kick the bucket, so to speak. People go skydiving. They have on their list the trek to Machu Picchu. Scuba diving on the Barrier Reef. See the Northern Lights. I wonder what's on your bucket list. If I knew I only had a short time to live, I think I'd want to write to those that I care about, to leave behind some way, so to speak, of of speaking into their lives after I'm gone, to leave them with parting instructions. I think I'd especially want to do that for my children, for Hamish and Gus and Piper and Jemima. I'd want them to continue what we together started. To Timothy is a letter from a father to a son. It's a father passing on his last instructions and encouragement as he prepares for what he sees as his inevitable death. The father is the Apostle Paul. And the son is not his biological son, but his spiritual son. The son is Timothy. Many of you will have heard of the Apostle Paul. He was convicted on the road from Damascus and converted through an encounter with Jesus. Previously known as Saul, he had been a persecutor of the church and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. God's agent to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the Gentile world. And he wrote many of the letters that we have in the New Testament. We know from this letter that Paul is in trouble. Verse 9 of chapter 2, we read that Paul is in chains. In other words, he's in prison. We know from verse 17 of chapter 1 that he's in Rome, the center of the known universe at that point. Seems like he's already had one hearing, one trial. And that during that trial, he was deserted by his friends and his supporters. The result of that trial, it seems, was a delay or a stay of his execution. Paul says that he was delivered from the lion's mouth, and I've been reminded this week that for a prisoner in Rome, that may well have been a real delivery, a literal delivery from the lion's mouth. See, back then, prisoners were piled into the arena, and hungry lions were given over to them. And yet, despite there being a stay of execution for Paul, Paul knows that his time is limited. We read that in chapter 4, verse 6. He says he's being poured out like a drink offering and his time of departure is near. I wonder what you would do 
if you knew that your time of departure was near. For Paul, he writes to Timothy, his spiritual son. Faced with his own death, he is really aware, isn't he, of his mortality. And so he writes of the immortality that the gospel brings. He writes to remind Timothy of the promise of life that is found in Christ Jesus. We see that right at the start of this letter. Let me just read to you these words from the very start of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul's writing in the face of death and yet he writes about life. His message is the life that we have in Jesus. Paul will go on in this letter to draw a connection between the resurrection of Jesus and our physical resurrection. But see here, despite the situation that Paul's in, despite his hardship, this is ultimately a letter of good news and great hope because it speaks of the promise of life that we have in Christ Jesus. I want you also to notice as we start our time in this letter that this letter is written to a specific man, to Timothy. It's a personal letter. Paul knows Timothy really, really well. He's like a father knowing his son. Timothy and Paul have ministered together for many years. They've, they've shared the ups and downs of life together. They've together served God and made him known. I think we sometimes overlook the fact that Timothy was a co-author of seven of the letters that Paul wrote. Let me just show you that. Come with me, if you will, to the start of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's on page 1,792 of your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 1792, if I've got it right. We read this there at the start of the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God... And Timothy, our brother. Timothy's a co-author with Paul. And we read a similar thing at the start of the letter to the Philippians and the Colossians. And 1, Thess- 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Philemon. And we see a similar sort of thing, not at the start of Romans, but towards the end of the book of Romans. So Timothy and Paul have done a lot of great ministry together. Seven of the letters we have in the New Testament are written by Timothy with Paul. But this letter, this is not one written by Timothy, rather one written to him. And it speaks directly to him as leader of the church in Ephesus. And for that reason, it's become a a letter of great um, support and encouragement to those who lead churches today. But I want you to notice also, right up front that Paul expects everyone in Timothy's church to be familiar with the content of this letter. It's not just a private document for Timothy's eyes. It's not like a a spy letter that's designed to self-destruct after Timothy's read it. No, Paul wants the whole congregation to know the content of this letter. One commentator that I read this week puts it this way. He expects that the congregation will be reading this letter over Timothy's shoulder. We know that from the very last sentence in the letter. 
if you flick over to chapter 4, verse 22, you'll read this at the very end. It says, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Or if we, could un- if we had a word for you in plural in English, it would be grace be with yous all. See, it's a plural at the end here. You who are reading this over the shoulder of Timothy, grace be to use all. This letter was, of course, written nearly 2,000 years ago, and yet the content of this letter, it's really so relevant for us today, isn't it? Almost reads like this letter was written yesterday. Because it's a letter that urges Timothy to withstand the pressure of public opinion pressure that challenges the very core of the gospel. John Stott, in his 1973 commentary on 2 Timothy, writes this at the start of his preface. I've got the quote on the screen behind me. He says, Timothy is called to be different. He is not to yield to the pressures of public opinion or conform to the spirit of his age, but rather to stand firm in the truth and the righteousness of God. In my mind, nothing is more needed by Christians in today's world and church than this same courage. John Stott wrote that nearly 50 years ago. And yet today, we too need courage, don't we? Over the last 2,000 years, there have been some supremely courageous Christians. Some of you will know that I went to college at Ridley in Melbourne. And we used to have in our courtyard a giant portrait of... Ridley, Nicholas Ridley. Ridley, together with Hugh Latimer, were burnt at the stake during the English Reformation. Hugh Latimer had taken a stand defending the gospel. And because of that, he was sentenced to death. As the fires were lit beneath their feet, Latimer famously said this. I reckon he might have written this down beforehand to remember it, because it's a strange thing to say otherwise. But he says this, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And he was in many ways right. The English Reformation went on and we today stand on their shoulders. But that is courage, isn't it? And it's a fitting illustration for us today in a chapter that urges Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. You may know of other great examples of Christian courage and conviction to stand in the face of public opinion. Eric Little, who stood as a great runner, withdrew from competing in the 1924 Paris Olympics because the races and the heats were held on Sunday. Withdrew because of his conviction. This is a powerful letter that we'll be reading over the next few weeks. And as we read and pray through this letter, it's my prayer that we as a church might too cultivate in ourselves a a steely resolution that through the grace of God, we too might be able to stand strong and courageous in the face of competing public opinion. It's my prayer that we as a church will always guard the truth of the gospel.
Well, today I want us to see from uh, the first chapter of two Corinth of, of uh, two Timothy, really three instructions that Paul gives to Timothy. You'll see those instructions listed in the outline of your leaflet. Three instructions: they are to fan into flame the gift of God. Secondly, to keep the pattern of sound teaching that's been modelled by Paul. And thirdly, to guard the good deposit. So the first instruction, it begins in verse 6 of chapter 1. Let me read that to you. It says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I wonder what you think these verses mean. I reckon at first glance, I understood the gist of what Paul was saying in the sense of fanning into flame, because the idea of fanning something into flame, I think, is something we're all familiar with to some extent. I'm an ex-chemical engineer, some of you know that. I'd love to be able to physically demonstrate to you what it means to fan a fire into flame. I'd love to be able to do that with you today. But as Matt mentioned before, um, we're not really allowed to do that at college here. We have only one stipulation in our agreement with the college in terms of renting this place. And that's because we have a, the college have a massive library in the back corner of the building over there. We are not permitted to have a naked flame anywhere on site except in the kitchen. And so rather than dragging you out to the kitchen to show you what this means, I'm going to trust that you understand what it means to fan a flame into fire. We get the idea though, don't we? You know, you start with your match, and you put the match to some kindling or some tinder, and carefully you fan that until all of a sudden it bursts into flame. For an engineer, you say that you get the perfect air-to-fuel ratio and your flame bursts into fire. I think we get the idea of the image that's being presented in the text here. But what's perhaps not so clear is what exactly is Timothy to feed or to fan? In other words, what is the gift of God which is in Timothy through the laying on of Paul's hands? I wonder what you think. Have a look down at your text and see if you can work that out. What is the gift of God which is in Timothy through the laying on of Paul's hands. I think John Piper is particularly helpful here. This is what, how he summarizes this little passage. I've got it on the screen behind me as well. He says, Timothy, keep feeding the white hot flame of God's gift. What is that gift? Well, here's what Piper suggests. The gift of unashamed courage to speak openly of Christ and to suffer for his gospel. You see how Piper gets there from verse 7? The spirit God gives is one of courage. It also involves power and love and self-discipline, but it's a spirit of courage. And so it's a gift of being unashamed of the gospel or those who suffer for the gospel. And it's a gift that will enable Timothy to join with Paul in suffering as he too speaks unashamedly about the gospel. And so if we're to still distill down to its very essence what these verses are saying, we might say it means something like this. Timothy, fan into flame the gift of courage 
to speak of Jesus unashamedly. Isn't that an instruction we need to hear today as well? You see, here at Trinity Church Unley, we believe what Paul says in verse 1, that the promise of life is found in Jesus. Only in Jesus. And so we long for as many people as possible to hear about Jesus. Now sure, we're not going to be able to tell everyone about Jesus, but we want as many as possible to know about him because we know this is a life and death message. Now to do that, to help lots of people get to know Jesus, we're going to need great wisdom and we're going to need insight and we're going to need to know how our society functions today and we're going to need to be smart and clever in how we speak about Jesus. We'll need to be creative and engaging and warm and personable and all those things. But we're also going to need courage, aren't we? Because it's not always easy to speak of Jesus. We might feel foolish as we go about doing that. We might feel ashamed. We might feel that ashamed that our family and friends will think of us as fools or backwards or old-fashioned or mean or critical. How can you believe an old book like that, they might say. Because speaking about Jesus is costly. We might feel that it lumps us into a, a group of people who the world has stereotyped and we don't want to be associated with them. It was the same in Timothy's day. And so Paul instructs Timothy, fan into flame the gift of courage to speak of Jesus unashamedly. Before we get too carried away, though, working out this idea of fanning into flame, I want us to see that while we have a role to play in this, the fanning and the cultivating of the gift is dependent on the grace of God. We see that in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. These are such wonderful verses, 9 and 10. They capture the timelessness of the grace of God. And if you're here today just wanting to know a little bit more about Jesus, these verses capture so very well what it is that we believe here. Because they remind us that our salvation is not because of what we've done, but because of the grace of God. Let me read to you these verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. It says this, He has saved us, that's God, and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See that big idea in the letter again? The message of the gospel is a message of life and immortality. It's a matter of life and death, isn't it? And so the speaking of it with unashamed courage, it's, it's so important for us to go about doing. The gospel is the only means of salvation. It's the only means of life. And God's called us, those who today trust in Jesus, he's called us to a holy life. A life of fanning the flame. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And that purpose and grace, it's not a, a split-second decision on God's behalf, isn't it? Did you notice that? The grace was given before 
not just before our lifetime or before Timothy's lifetime 2,000 years ago. No, before the very beginning of time. We worship a God of planning and purpose, don't we? He chose you before the beginning of time. I wonder how that makes you feel this morning. To know you were chosen before the beginning of time. And if he chose you, he must know you. And because of what the choosing means, he must love you as well. For Timothy, facing Paul's death, facing the death of his spiritual father, he's entering uncertain times, isn't he? And this must have been a a great encouragement for him and a reminder that his God is a God of planning and purpose. Verse 10 goes on to show us that not only was the grace given before the beginning of time, but the grace was manifest in a particular time, the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That event in human history that brought about life and immortality for the followers of Jesus. It was that event, a historical event, that made all these things possible. So can you see in verses 9 and 10 that Paul... Uh, sets out the gospel for which he is an apostle. It's a gospel that deals with life and death and immortality. It's the good news that God, the creator of the universe, chose us before his creation work was even done. And if that's the case, can you see then why Paul might be willing to suffer and be shamed for the gospel? I'd love you to pray for me as your pastor that through the grace of God, I would be willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel as Paul was. Don't hear me wrong at this point. I'm not asking to be persecuted, but I can see here in the text an imperative to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus even if there is persecution. It's worth it, isn't it? Because the gospel is a message of life and death and immortality. worth us doing that as a church to keep preaching that message well in verses 13 and 14 timothy gives two further uh, paul gives two further instructions to timothy keep the pattern of teaching that you learn from me and secondly guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you timothy perhaps more than any other person would have been acquainted with the way that paul went about doing his ministry He would have been very familiar with Paul's pattern of teaching. Patterns are important, aren't they? They're designed and used so that you can replicate things. You might have used a pattern to sew a dress that enables you to make a dress in the form of the original design. The patterns are also a bit like a formwork, aren't they? They provide a template for you to go about creating something. Paul had a pattern of teaching that he wanted Timothy to hold on to, especially when the going got tough. I wonder, do you have patterns in life that helps you when the going gets tough? Are there particular habits that you've created that enable you to get through the days? I think this is particularly important in our spiritual life. Patterns that enable us to pray and read the Bible. My pattern at the moment is to pray each morning and to read my Bible when I first sit down at my desk in the office. 
I use a book of prayers to do that. It's a pattern or a habit that helps me to pray even when I feel tired and grumpy and disheartened, which I'm sure, like the rest of you, is more often than you'd like it to be. A pattern that enables me to do that. Perhaps you have similar patterns that you use in your spiritual life. Paul is encouraging Timothy to adopt a pattern that follows after his own as Paul himself follows after the footsteps of Jesus. Do you have a pattern that you use in life? In verse 14 of chapter 1, we see another instruction to Timothy, and that is to guard the good deposit. You know how in sports teams, they have defensive and offensive moves? Well, Paul's first instruction to fan into flame the gift of God, I reckon that's kind of like an offensive move. And here in verse 14, we see the, the defensive move, guard the good deposit. The deposit is, of course, the gospel, and it's the gospel that Paul is asking Timothy to guard. What's he guarding against? Well, we see in part, at least, it's the guard in the face of false teaching. We see some of that false teaching in the next chapter with Hermineus and Philetus, who are teaching that the resurrection of Jesus has already happened. I've never met anyone called Hermineus or Philetus. But there are still people in our world today who are teaching things that just aren't true about the Bible. There are those who deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. There are those who want us to interpret the events of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus in a kind of metaphorical story way rather than as historical reality. But perhaps for us today, we need to be even more careful of the half-truths or the watering down of the gospel that happens all around us. Perhaps today we need to guard against the pressures of wealth and the success that we have in our lives. Perhaps today when we look around at our successful colleagues at work, or those really well-dressed parents at the school pick up and drop off, or the sporting mum and dads who seem to be able to inspire their children to play with such skill. Maybe when we look at those people, we think they don't need the gospel. Maybe we think, sure, it's good news for us, but, but they already have it all. What more could Jesus offer them? Well, that friend of yours has always been so nice, always so ready to give you a hand when you're shifting something heavy, the one who lends you tools and then never complains even when you don't give them back for six months. Surely they don't need Jesus. They already have it all, you might be thinking. Oh, here's the message for us in 2 Timothy. The message of Jesus is one of life and immortality. That's the only way to get there. See, we need to keep our guards raised so that we don't drift from the reality that Jesus is God's anointed king, that he physically died and rose for us, for our sins. And that the physical body resurrection of Jesus is our justification. We need to remember that he has a claim on our lives because of that. This is the message of life. We need to hold on to that and guard it. It's no less important for us today than it was for Timothy when he first got this letter. So how do we do that? How do we guard the good deposit? Well, here are two ideas. Firstly, I think we need to know it ourselves. We can't guard what we don't know, can we? 
you're not sure what the gospel is, I'd love you to tick on the response form to have a conversation with a partner, because I'd love with a pastor, because I'd love to catch up with you this week and explain to you what it is that we believe. Or you might like to take out your Bibles this afternoon and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is perhaps the gospel richest chapter in the whole Bible. It explains for us what the gospel is. I'd love you to know the gospel. It's the first way I think we can go against guarding it. The second way I think we can guard the gospel, and I get this from Chris Green in his book on 2 Timothy is to put the gospel out there in the public domain so that it can be discussed and kicked around, so to speak, so that it can be opened up to scrutiny and then subsequently defended according to Scripture. If we open it up for ridicule and discussion, we can then defend it and in so doing so, guard it. And in part, that's why we have an SMS line here at Unley. As a preacher, I don't each week get a special word from God that kind of magically appears on my computer screen and I just hit print and then come and speak it to you. It'd be nice sometimes if that happened that way. No, the way in which I prepare these messages is through looking at the Scripture, looking at the Bible, wrestling with it, exploring it, trying to understand what it means. And so let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open as you hear me preach. And as you hear others preach and challenge and wrestle with what they say, does it match up to the words that are written on the page? See, that's how we guard the good deposit, by wrestling with it and looking at it. And if this is so important, so important that Timothy, Paul's adopted son, needed to be reminded of this, Timothy, who was the co-author of seven of Paul's letters, Even he, it seems, needed to be reminded to guard the good deposit. It's not an easy task, is it? And yet, can you see that we do it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us? It's not easy, but it is possible through the work of the Spirit. Well, let me just recap with you before I finish up this morning where we've been today and what we've seen at the start of the second letter to Timothy. Paul's life is getting to its end. In 2 Timothy, he writes to his adopted son, giving him some final instructions. Fan into flame the gift of unashamedly speaking with courage about Jesus. Do it in the face of public opposition. Do it when it looks like foolishness. Do it even when the message of the gospel seems to oppose the wisdom of the day, when it clashes with public opinion. Keep the pattern of ministry that Paul had. Follow in the footsteps of Paul, just as Paul follows in the footsteps of Jesus. And guard the good deposit that is the gospel. Protect it. Shield it from false teaching and half-truths and from those that water it down. That is Timothy's task. And it's no different for us today as a church, is it? It's a task that we share with Timothy Because we here at Trinity Church only want to be people who know the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us that we'd be able to do that. Father God, we give you thanks for this letter that was written so long ago, but seems so relevant for us today. Father, we live in a world which we know you know, but in which it seems as though 
public opinion seems to be drifting from your teaching. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us great courage to speak your truth when it looks like foolishness, to speak your truth even when it clashes with the wisdom of the day. Father, we ask that through your spirit you would help us to guard the good deposit of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. We ask this for your glory. Amen. One question for us today, and it's a really great question. It says, grace given before the beginning of time, is this the grace that saved Abraham, Isaac and Jacob without seeing the crucifixion? the historical time of the cross, simply to anchor what God made available to all who believed by faith. Good question, isn't it? What's the role of the cross in this? Um, I was just reminded of when I was reading this question of what uh, the book of Hebrews talks about this. The book of Hebrews shows us very clearly that Jesus and his death and resurrection on the cross is the one true sacrifice that puts an end to sin and that makes us right with God. The people of the Old Testament obviously didn't see that, but they were looking forward to it. Let me just read to you a few verses from Hebrews chapter 11. It says, all these people, and by all these people they're speaking about people like Abraham, Isaac, Noah, Jacob, these sorts of people. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been think, uh, they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return and said they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. See, they didn't see what they were waiting for with their own lives, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but they were looking forward to the promises of God. And here we see the promises of God in uh, what we've read in 2 Timothy today, being anchored in a time through the death and resurrection of Jesus, a historical time and an event. It's that event is the one true sacrifice that doesn't end to sin. So yeah, I think that question is kind of spot on the money. That's uh, That's the thing that they were looking forward to and hoping of. And that's the thing that gives them confidence to look forward to life and immortality as well. Thanks, Mike.